0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 121, Apollo 17. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We are in the middle of celebrating 50 years of the Apollo program. This summer, 2019, we focused on Apollo 11, as we passed 50 years since the first landing of humans on the moon. Just recently we passed 50 years since Apollo 12, where Pete Conrad and Alan Bean became the next two men on the moon on November 19, 1969, while Richard Gordon flew solo in the command module. Not a smooth ride to get there either, as the Saturn V was famously struck by lightning during ascent on November 14th. And ecom John Aaron in Mission Control suggested switching, quote, SCE to Ox. No one quite knew what that meant, but they did it. It worked, and the crew were able to navigate to the moon, with Conrad saying whoopee as his first word as he exited the lunar module first onto the lunar surface. Conrad and Bean conducted two spacewalks, set up some science experiments, took color video, collected rocks and pieces of the Surveyor 3 probe that landed on the surface more than two years prior. And then they returned safely to Earth on November 24th. So, in the spirit of the 50th anniversaries, I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Harrison Schmidt recently, the lunar module pilot of Apollo 17, and the only geologist to walk on the moon. He came to our studio to speak about the 50th anniversary of the Apollo program, but I had the chance to ask him more about his Apollo 17 mission, what is scientifically interesting about the moon, and what we have to look forward to during the Artemis program. So here we go. 47 years after his launch to walk on the moon, Dr. Harrison Schmidt. Enjoy.
1: E minus five seconds and County Mark. I want to commit the Here she goes. Isn't we have a podcast?
0: Dr. Schmidt, I am very honored to be speaking with you today. Thank you for joining me. Uh, we're now 50 years past this historic Apollo program, thinking back on this momentous time in American history. I wanted to start just before you came to NASA, or even shortly after. Uh, what were some of the more interesting geological questions that you wanted to answer when looking at the moon?
1: Well, the uh, the moon had uh, been, long been an area of scientific fascination uh, for geologists as well as astronomers. And uh, I think the main thing that we were, uh, needed to know is how old was the surface of the moon? How old were the rocks that we could see from the, using telescopes? And also, uh, uh, be, well, because, mainly because that would tell us how much of Earth history it was going to uh, record because the moon has been in the vicinity of the Earth as a planet for uh, billions of years, but we just didn't know how long that was. And so if there was one fundamental question of, that related directly back to the Earth, it was how old was the moon?
0: Now tell me about when, um, when we were looking at the Apollo program, actually putting boots on the surface of the moon, um, what you did to study the moon and pick out the best locations and the more interesting geological parts of it.
1: Well, the initial... Uh, Selection of landing sites was based purely on operational considerations. Uh, What were the smoothest areas that we could identify using the uh, photography that uh, the Lunar Orbiter uh, unmanned satellite of the moon had uh, provided. It was uh, the the Lunar Orbiter program and the Lunar Surveyor program, the the soft landing program, had been in the mix even before Kennedy made his announcement and they were programs that then were transferred over into the Apollo uh, program office, and uh, and then retargeted in order to examine those areas that might, around the equator, that might be uh, most favorable for landing. And so the first uh, uh, two landings were basically related to those early landing sites. And then as we got more confidence, we started to expand the landing sites until finally with Apollo 17, the mission I flew on, we landed in a valley deeper than the Grand Canyon and only about seven kilometers wide. So it was really a spectacular evolution of
0: the uh, landing site selection. It was really the uh, establishing <clears> the <throat> confidence of the operation itself, given that this was a fairly new operation. You know, we were just getting to the moon.
1: Well, it was new. In <laughs> yeah, fact, right. Uh, you know, in fact, people have to realize Apollo 11 was a test flight. Uh, nobody knew for sure that we were going to be able to land on Apollo 11 and of course we came close not landing on Apollo 11 but nevertheless to the skill that Neil Armstrong showed we were able to do that and also the uh, uh, knowledge that was present in Mission Control Center we can't forget how important a role they played uh, in the Apollo program and that all, you also have to keep that in mind that when you decide you're finally going to go to Mars Mission Control won't be nearly as involved there'll be a planning operation but not
0: a real-time uh, part of the uh, actual landings on Mars. Very true. Now, you said Apollo 11 was, <clears throat> was selected mainly because of operational constraints, making sure that we can successfully land on the moon. That was one of the big parts of why we selected that site.
1: Well, it was a little more complicated than that. Okay. Because Apollo 8, uh, Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Jim Lovell's mission, uh, was targeted to the f- farthest east landing site that we had determined would be acceptable for Apollo. And uh, when they uh, were able to view that landing site using a 10-power monocular, uh, they felt very confident, Bill Anders in particular, that uh, it looked pretty good. And so when Apollo 10 came along, I suggested to Tom Stafford that maybe we ought to uh, ask management to shift their landing site, one, one Apollo landing site westward, so they would have a chance to look at a second site as well as a third site because they were going to be in orbit longer. And we, we uh, spent quite a bit of time with management trying to convince them that that was a good plan and eventually uh, prevailed. And so the, uh, the planned landing uh, launch day for Apollo 10 was shifted. Uh, by one day in order to see two more sites. Well, as soon as you did that, that pretty well determined where Apollo 11 was going to land. They were going to land at the targeted site for Apollo 10.
0: Now, (laughs) this site, uh, of of course, being, you know, operationally the the chosen landing site for Apollo 11, what geologically was interesting about it?
1: The main thing that was geologically interesting about Apollo 11 was gathering a, a, a broad suite of samples and that's indeed what neil did neil did a fantastic job in about 20 minutes he gave us one of the best collections of uh, lunar rocks that we've ever gotten in a short amount of time including the soil of the moon he he told me later that he looked at that rock box that he was putting the rocks in and it said it looked awfully empty so he just filled it up with soil we even know, you know it's a famous number 10084, is the is the soil from the apollo 11 site and it's extremely important soil. Not only did we get the age, uh, we found out the moon was very old from the rocks that uh, Neil brought uh, collected. But uh, that soil has given us uh, great insights into the resource base that the moon represents, not only for lunar settlements, but also potentially for use here on Earth, namely a fuel for fusion power, a light isotope of helium that is present in those soils. And then again, resources that can help us go to Mars.
0: Now, as a geologist, I'm sure you had a drive to actually put yourself on the moon and look at all these fascinating sites from your own eyes. Tell me about your drive to, um, to go through the training for other systems, command module training, lunar module training, to become an astronaut and, and actually fly to the moon as a geologist.
1: Well, as you can gather from uh, Deke Slayton's book, uh, Deke, Uh, he did not think that uh, they needed scientist astronauts. And so the challenge in front of all of the scientist astronauts, the six that were selected, was to become as operational uh, pilots as they possibly could, not only jet pilots and helicopter pilots, but also to be as good as anyone at operating the spacecraft. And so that was a challenge in front of me, that if I was ever going to have a chance to uh, be part of a crew that went to the moon, I would have to be as good as
0: anybody else. Now, reflecting on specifically Apollo 11, can you tell me about where you were, where you remember being during that mission and what you were doing?
1: Well, most of the time, Apollo 11, I was in mission control. Uh, I had spent a great deal amount of time both uh, with the training of the crew, with the monitoring of the uh, uh, configuration and packing of the uh, descent stage, and also with the planning of uh, the little bit of uh, EVA activity that they were going to have. And so I, I spent uh, a great deal of time, as I did for all the missions, except my own, uh, <laughs> in mission control. It, that's where the action was, and, that's, and those are the people you were going to be dependent upon in, uh, once you were in space. So uh, I, I have great respect and a lot of great friends in mission control.
0: Looking back 50 years, can you tell me your thoughts when you saw Neil Armstrong take those first steps on the moon?
1: Well, it was exciting for everybody and primarily because of the patriotism. People have to remember that Apollo 11, the whole Apollo program, uh, started out initially as a part of the Cold War, the the competition between communism in the Soviet Union and democracy in the United States. And uh, and the people who signed up for Apollo, uh, 400 and 450,000 Americans were in this Primarily because of their patriotism, and their belief that it was critical to the uh, competition that then existed in the Cold War. And so uh, it was mainly a patriotic feeling, I think, that we all had, particularly those of us in mission control, that uh, the success uh, really was what Kennedy had asked us to do, what Eisenhower had uh, helped plan uh, and develop technologies to do, uh, so that uh, we really did make a difference. In the Cold War, I think we all felt that it made made a big difference. And subsequently, emigres from the then Soviet Union made it very clear that 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 once we had landed on the moon, indeed, once we had launched a Saturn V, that they felt that the the Moon Race was over.
0: We're now 50 years past that moment. Can you tell me what you're thinking now, 50 years later?
1: Well, I feel the same way. I I think not only was uh, was it extraordinarily important to the uh, winning of the Cold War, to the, to the collapse of the, of the then Soviet Union. But now it, it offers lessons to us as we enter into a period of time where we may and I think do have another Cold War, primarily in competition with China. And, uh, and the Apollo program is, is a, an example for uh, NASA or some other agency that may come into existence on how to uh, d- compete in space, in deep space, how to manage the risks of deep space, and how to create a management environment where things can happen very, very quickly, and you can make milestones.
0: Going back to post-Apollo 11 landing, I'm sure after, after witnessing Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon, you had some ideas from a geological standpoint of what was important and how to conduct science and look for the right samples. Can you tell me about some of your work moving forward from Apollo 11 to your mission, Apollo 17, where you were training us other astronauts and preparing yourself for those missions?
1: Well, all of that preparation actually began before I even applied for the astronaut program. Uh, it goes back to uh, having been able to uh, work with uh, Eugene Shoemaker in the uh, U.S. Geological Survey's activities that uh, related to Apollo, they were on NASA contracts to think exactly about those issues of not, not only how, <coughs> how would you do science on the moon, but what science would be important. And uh, in fact, I even uh, planned a, a lunar traverse, a uh, hypothetical traverse, uh, using the uh, ranger pictures from the ranger program, the, the last image of the moon that ranger provided before it crashed into the moon, I uh, I uh, did a traverse plan, was published, and was I think the first traverse plan that, that was ever done. <clears throat> and after Apollo 11, and once we knew the, in broad strokes uh, what we were dealing with in terms of the age of the moon, the variety of of lunar rocks that we might see, the what may have been the evolutionary sequence of the moon as a small planet. Uh, that uh, then started to get everybody thinking uh, not only myself but many others about how to gather more information, more detailed information about the moon and how it <clears throat> how it relates to the earth. Again the earth was our primary focus of that early history of the earth that is obscure to us down here on uh, on earth because of the dynamic processes that take place geologically here versus the very quiet, activity of the moon at least in the last three and a half billion years.
0: Now jumping forward to Apollo 17, in, which way, in what ways were you essentially practicing and <coughs> studying for your mission?
1: Well Apollo 17 uh, training actually began when I worked with Dick Gordon and uh, on, as a backup crew member for the Apollo 15 uh, mission to the moon. And uh, that uh, was really the beginning of my intense training. There were 15 months of training then, 15 months of training for Apollo 17. And most of that training, of course, had to do with uh, flying the spacecraft and carrying out the actual operational plan for the Apollo 17 mission. Uh, In addition, because of the training program that I had uh, put together for the Apollo 13 crew and that continued on for other missions, Uh, We spent about a week a month actually out in the field working on geological problems, but getting used to using the equipment that we would have on the surface.
0: Now, again, just prior to Apollo 17, you putting your own boots on the moon, tell me about some of the top lessons and strategies you learned from some of your other fellow um, uh, Apollo astronauts who previously walked on the moon. What were they telling you on how to be successful?
1: Well, the main thing that we learned from all the crews uh, is that time is relentless, that you never have enough time to do what you want to do. And no matter how conservative you make the flight plan, you run out of time. <laughs> it's just the way space is. And in fact, it's the way life is, but uh, it is focused and concentrated on sp- in space more than, uh, than uh, normally is the case here on, uh, on Earth. And so uh, we tried to put together flight plans, uh, our EVA plans particularly, that uh, understood that, that you would never have enough time to do things. And for Apollo 17, because we had a geologist, a field geologist, that's that's a very important distinction, is uh, someone who's uh, used to sizing up a geological situation quickly, using their experience to do that, and then focusing on what appears to be important at that particular location. And so for Apollo 17, we tried to open up the timeline so I would have enough time uh, to do that while, while the commander was actually uh, doing the housekeeping part of taking care of the lunar rover and, and other things like that. Uh, and then uh, once uh, that was complete, then we, the two of us could focus as a team, and a very important to work as a team for sampling and, other, and photography and the like, uh, on what uh, seemed to be the best approach to uh, gathering the most information we could from any particular station that we would stop at on Apollo 17.
0: Now, referring back to your training, you said most of your training was, of course, for the operations of the whole thing. Uh, Focusing specifically on the lunar module, can you tell me about that experience, training in the lunar module, and and learning to pilot it for your mission?
1: Well, the lunar module was a remarkable vehicle. It, uh, of course, was designed to work in space, not in an atmosphere. It was very lightweight compared to what you would expect a spacecraft to be, certainly anything that Buck Rogers had would not work very well on the moon uh, because of the, the mass. And so uh, the lunar module was an v- extraordinary challenge, and the workers at Grumman Aircraft Corporation at the time did a, a remarkable job in developing it, as well as the NASA engineers who oversaw their work and who figured out uh, in the final analysis how to get the weight to a point. Uh, the mass of the lunar module to a point of where it could actually land on the moon, uh, given the kind of energy that the Saturn V had to place it there, uh, so uh, uh, it was a remarkable vehicle. it could do many things. Uh, obviously, we used a computer it was a very primitive computer, but one that w- did the job extremely well and One thing you have to remember that that computer was tied through telemetry. To larger computers, much larger computers, IBM computers here on, on Earth, and so when we made a measurement using, say, a telescope or something like that in the lunar module or in the command module, that information came back and was processed down here on Earth, and then the results of that processing was put into our uh, guidance system uh, in the uh, two spacecraft. Uh, so it was a it was a cooperative thing between the space between space and mission control. Uh, a very important co- uh, cooperative activity. The, uh, the, and one of the things, though, that for our mission that I think w- was unique, I know it was unique, is that we were able to figure out, I worked with the, the engineers who uh, had developed the uh, abort guidance system, which was a different kind of computer, much uh, less precise than the uh, primary guidance and navigation system that we had, the Pings uh... but i worked with a way in which we could get a a altitude update uh... during landing during the the final approach to the surface of the moon get an altitude update in the uh... Abort guidance system so that if we had to we could probably have landed using the abort guidance system if the primary system had failed we didn't have to use that but that was d- different about the challenger operation than any other mission is that uh, uh, with with the help of these Engineers, I had figured out how to get an altitude update into the, into my computer. the uh, The abort guidance system was a computer that I ran.
0: <laughs> well, t- tell me about some of the uh, some of the challenges being a <clears throat> geologist by training to to learn these systems compared to uh, some of the test pilot astronauts.
1: Well, it turns out that I, uh, test pilots and geologists are very much alike. They <laughs> they have to be good observers. Uh, they have to have a background in, uh, in a, a wide variety of scientific disciplines. Uh, clearly, the test pilots did not know the geological vocabulary, and so we kept that as very simple, as very simple as possible. Uh, but, and uh, clearly, geologists didn't know how to, how to fly airplanes. Most of us didn't. Uh, and so that was the, the, the main thing, was to bring these two groups together, using their their, their complementary talents, and actually end up with uh, uh, pilots who were good field geologists and a field geologist who was a good pilot and that re- really is uh, I think a lesson for the future is that that's the best way to operate in fact I would have every geologist that goes to Mars also be a a, a jet pilot and a helicopter pilot I think it's very very important discipline uh, uh, type of discipline to have in the have learned even though you learn it late in life
0: now jumping to you landing on the moon for Apollo 17, tell me about your thoughts suiting up and taking those first steps.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> you get so focused on following the timeline, making sure that you maximize the use of the taxpayers' time that you have on the moon, uh, that uh, you don't th- I didn't think very much about what was going on, other than to make sure that we were getting out and getting to work. Uh, and in retrospect, you, you, you file away these impressions of that, uh, but uh, I didn't stand around and say ooh and ah yeah. very much on the lunar surface. Uh, but we landed in a valley deeper than the Grand Canyon, as I said before, and it uh, really a magnificent place. The mountains on either side went to 1,600, on, one, on the north to 2,200 meters above the valley floor. Uh, it uh, uh, was brilliantly illuminated by the sun, a, uh, uh, but the, the unusual, two unusual things was that any time you looked up into this blacker than black sky, you could see the earth, and really a remarkable experience.
0: Now, tell me about your uh, your mission priorities as a geologist. Now, you're, you're, you said you were focused and, and trying to stick to the timeline, but you wanted to free up your time so that you could survey and, and use your eye to look at the more interesting parts. Tell me about your priorities.
1: Well, we had, um, uh, with the help of many people, had put together uh, what turns out to be an excellent plan using the uh, limited photography we had of the landing site. And today, of course, we have Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter images of the landing site, which are... If we'd had them at the time, you stand back and say, would I have changed the flight plan? Well, actually it turns out I don't think I would have, based even on the information we have today. But we have learned so much from the samples and the, and the photography uh, that it, we've just been able to enhance and grow from the information that we collected. And, but the, and the priorities that we had established uh, for the Apollo 17 mission was to Uh, take advantage of that three-dimensional situation we're in to sample boulders that had rolled off these uh, these high mountains uh, to look at an avalanche deposit that had come off of one of them uh, and the whole area seemed to be covered by some dark material that we thought would be volcanic ash turns out it was but we did not expect and one of the great discoveries of Apollo 17 was to actually find a deposit Uh, a relatively undisturbed deposit of this volcanic ash, the so-called orange soil. It was actually orange and black, most of it was black, but the top part of it was orange. And that discovery has turned out to be one of the primary uh, discoveries uh, related to the moon and the earth in that it tells us uh, more about the origin of the moon, it tells us about the uh, presence of volatiles and, and indigenous water inside the moon, and uh, it tells us about the, the processes by which these uh, what we call pyroclastic, volatile driven eruptions occur on the Moon. They, uh, anybody who watched the news about Hawaii knows what a pyroclastic eruption looks like. It's a very violent kind of thing. Well, on the Moon, those happened in one-sixth gravity, and so they're even more uh, spectacular, or were more spectacular, uh, three and a half billion years ago.
0: Yeah. Um- You know, Mm -hmm. looking back at that time, looking at all these different samples, is there a particular moment you remember retrieving a sample or or something you, maybe something unexpected that you remember during one of your EVAs?
1: Well, almost every sample was unexpected (laughs) because we couldn't see that resolution. Mm -hmm. And so you pick a place where you think you're going to find something interesting, and indeed every place we picked did have things that were interesting. And I mentioned the orange soil, the volcanic ash that uh, we discovered, that, that probably was the highlight of at least that particular EVA, the second EVA. Uh, uh, but every mission, and I continue to work on these samples and, and the work, and not so much on the samples, but what other people have done to analyze the samples and try to synthesize that information uh, into a more, uh, into a coherent picture of what actually happened uh, on the Moon and how it relates to the origin of the Moon and indeed to the uh, uh, history of the Earth.
0: So tell me about the, some of the other experiments that were happening during Apollo 17. There was, a, there was a light flash experiment looking at cosmic rays, a gravimeter, some of these other experiments.
1: We had a, a, way, a wide variety of geophysical experiments that we put out on the moon. Uh, we, we deployed an active seismic experiment, which were actually charges of, uh, uh, the largest one was about six pounds of TNT equivalent. We deployed these. Uh, and they were activated, of course, after we left, uh, not before. I had I, I deployed almost all of them, and I had to pull three, ring, three uh, pins to activate timers that would allow them to be exploded 90 hours after they were activated. And so there was plenty of margin there. Uh, but still, you, you have a t- six pounds of TNT in your hand and you're pulling pins on it. That's an interesting psychological thing to be doing. <laughs> the, uh, we also have a, had a uh, traverse gravimeter uh, experiment. So we measured the lunar gravity at every site where we stopped and then some. Uh, that, mater- that information has been refined recently uh, using the laser altimetry uh, from the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft, uh, so that it is even better now than it was when we gathered it. Uh, same same data, but it's been refined using that new information. We also uh, had a, uh, a lunar surface gravimeter, just a static gravimeter, that was designed to measure what's called the free oscillations of the Moon. The Earth and the Moon both have free oscillations if they're activated by an earthquake or moonquake. Uh, but also they would be activated by gravity waves coming by so it was the first real attempt to measure gravity waves to just, to see if gravity waves really existed we now know that they do that's been a very important uh, experiment that that's been conducted here on earth but at the time the idea was to use the earth and the moon as a big oscillator in space and so if a gravity wave went by it would activate both of them at the same time mm-hmm. <clears throat> that uh, uh unfortunately that experiment did not work uh but uh, nevertheless the idea was there an extremely important idea to try to uh, verify einstein's uh, uh, uh hypotheses about uh, gravity
0: right now now a lot of these experiments you're saying um Understanding more about the Moon helps us to understand Earth, which is extremely important. There's, there's some physics aspects to to what you're studying. Can any of this be applied to future exploration, knowing what it would be like to if we were to live on the Moon for an extended period of time? Is any of this data relevant to maybe those missions in the future?
1: The main uh, data that we have now about the Moon that's relevant to future uh, settlements, future activities on the Moon, is that that comes from the soils, the lunar soils, because those soils have been gathering the resources of the moon that are, are, are put out as part of the solar wind. There's uh, uh, hydrogen, there's nitrogen, carbon uh, principally. And with hydrogen, you can always make water and, and extract oxygen then from the rocks themselves. So for the, for the future, our, our primary knowledge that we have gathered has been from the soils. Of the moon, and uh, and and as I indicated earlier, there is a, uh, a light isotope of helium called helium-3, that is the only resource that we know about on the moon that potentially can be of great value here on Earth. It is an ideal fuel for fusion power, produces no radioactive residuals of any kind, but produces electrical power at uh, very high efficiency when fused with itself or with the uh, heavy isotope of hydrogen called deuterium. Uh, So uh, we have uh, two great discoveries based on really what Neil Armstrong sampled, uh, Mm. 10084, that that soil that he filled up the rock box with, in that we know that we have resources that can support us when we decide to live on the moon and when we decide to go to Mars, and a a single resource that may be of extraordinary value here on Earth, Uh, Particularly as we try to wean ourselves from fossil fuels.
0: Jumping back to your Apollo 17 mission, you spent three days on the surface. Can you tell me about actually living beyond the work itself? Did you establish a routine or what was it like to actually live there for a few days?
1: There's almost never any routine when you're on the moon, something always happens that uh, disrupts the plan. (laughs) Uh, For one thing, uh, right as soon as we almost as soon as we landed, when we were having our first meal, well, the compartment uh, where the meals were stored uh, uh, opened up, the pressure from the the atmosphere, the pressure in the bags had put enough uh, pressure on the door of that compartment that when we opened it up, all the meals came out into the cabin. (laughs) So we had to figure out a way to stuff all that back into the cabin. Uh, also, you, ha- you, you never can really experience 160G continuously without being there. And in fact, that's the essential ingredient of the excitement of being on the moon, is being there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't transfer that to you or to anybody else. You have to go there yourself, so I hope you have that opportunity someday. <laughs> the, uh, but uh, uh, we, we, of course, knew how to sling our hammocks for sleep, uh, in the moon, but until you actually do that and get in them you don't realize how comfortable one six gravity can be. I slept extremely well on the moon, I'd wake up about every two hours and listen to make sure that the fans and the pumps were all still running. You don't want complete silence on the moon, believe me, and, uh, and then I'd go back to sleep. So I, I slept very well, I can't speak for uh, the commander I can't uh, or anyone else, but I slept very well on the moon.
0: Hmm. It's almost like the, the routine was adaptability, really, just just going it's, with the bunch.
1: That's the essence of being a human being, yeah. is being able to adapt.
0: <laughs> uh, tell me about, particularly on your mission, you traveled pretty far in the lunar rover, the LRV. Can you tell me some of the advantages you had uh, driving that distance and really expanding your reach on the moon?
1: Well, there was a great debate uh, uh, before the lunar rover was finally picked as a system for use on the moon. Uh, between having uh, a driving machine and having a hopping machine. Uh, and uh, that that uh, was an interesting debate. The geochemists tend to favor hopping from place to place because they just want a sample here and a sample there, sample there. A field geologist wants to see the context as you approach a, a particular sample site. You want to see how how is everything else fit into that uh, particular place. So that debate went on among geologists and engineers. Uh, as well and uh, Max Vigier, uh, who who is the chief engineer down here at the John- uh, manned spacecraft center now Johnson space center uh, it uh, he finally just asked one question he says how are you going to train to use a hopper and that pretty well uh, settled that it's going was going to be very difficult we had been going through the lunar landing training vehicle experience where three men including Neil Armstrong had to bail out of that machine it was a very difficult thing to train with uh, the lunar module pilots finally were not trained in that because just the difficulties of of using it uh... and uh... and so uh... The max had a great deal of influence on whether we had a lunar rover or a lunar hopper now the lunar rover itself uh, worked very well we could uh, go at about uh, ten or twelve kilometers an, uh, an hour over most of the terrain that we drove on it could t- uh, we drove up a twenty uh, degree slope to get to station six the big boulder there uh so it uh, it performed extremely well uh never we never had any problem there were little glitches on on the other two missions but we had never had any noticeable problem uh the uh Boeing people the Marshall people the General Motors people all did a wonderful job in building designing and building that particular vehicle it uh, it really made a great deal of difference the, the main contribution i think uh, i made to Uh, operations of the lunar rover while uh, uh, for Apollo 17 was to develop uh, a uh, rover sampler which was basically a nested set of what we call Dixie Cups Uh, in a sampler we could put on one of the extension handles and I wouldn't have to get off in order just to get a soil sample or a small rock sample just by reaching down and those samples have turned out to be extremely valuable because they give a lot more context between stations of how were the soils of them of the area changing uh, as we uh, approach different
0: sites. Hmm. So, and you were able to do that <clears> because <throat> of the distance you can cover with the rover? You yeah, can, no, no
1: can, question about it. We've covered a total of about 32 kilometers right. with the rover. Uh, the farthest we uh, we went away from the Lunar Module Challenger was about uh, 7 kilometers out to Station 2 at the base of the South Massif, the highest mountain in the area.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you mentioned about uh, looking out onto the surface of the moon, you mentioned the blackness of the sky, but you also mentioned that you can see the earth. Can you tell me about uh, seeing the earth from the moon and some of your thoughts there?
1: I can't really tell you.
0: You've got
1: to go there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's always in the same part of the sky yeah. because uh, the moon, as the moon goes around the earth, it keeps the same face towards the earth, and so the earth is always in the same part of the sky. If you're right in the center of the moon, it's going to be directly above you. It was a little bit, it was down below uh, that uh, point a little bit for us, it was always over this high mountain, the South Massif. Uh, And so seeing that, uh, it was really remarkable experience in that black sky. And it's primarily blue with uh, the white clouds, uh, patterns that... uh, we're familiar with, but and the, the one thing that stands out on the Earth are the uh, large desert areas, such as Australia, for example. It stands out almost as an orange beacon, even from the distance of the moon, 250,000 miles mm-hmm. uh, from where we were.
0: Um, reflecting on Apollo 17, can you tell me about your crewmates, Gene Cernan and, and Ron Evans?
1: Outstanding crewmates. I think I can say that for all the crews. For the most part, they uh, they worked together extremely well. Once assigned to a mission, they approached it very professionally. Uh, uh, not many of them were close friends, I don't think. Uh, afterwards, uh, I think the uh, the Apollo 12 crew is probably a good example of, of very close friends. But uh, most of the people just they were professional. They came together as a crew, worked extremely well, and uh, and did extraordinarily uh, great jobs on each of the missions. And uh, uh, now, Ron Evans, I think, probably knew the command module America better than anybody had ever known the command module. I was really very impressed with what Ron could do. Uh, he, uh, he And of course, he had to spend three days alone in orbit around the moon, but uh, in that process operated a, a wide variety of remote sensing uh, instruments uh, as well as kept uh, prepared in order to receive us should we have to leave the moon in a
0: hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping till after Apollo 17 returning, um, you, know, you were conducting all of these experiments, and you've already mentioned some of the findings from some of those experiments, some of the, some of the things you've discovered uh, <coughs> from doing geological surveys on the Moon. But um, can you tell me some of the things, uh, some of the other highlights of the, of the things you learned during your stay?
1: Well, just recently, uh, we've been able to take the nitrogen isotopes that are in the, the deep core of the uh, that uh, we we uh, obtained uh, on Apollo 17, take the, the data from those nitrogen isotopes, and and look like we have found a major change in solar activity uh, uh, just about 500 million years ago. Uh, it, we're still working on that, but it uh, it looks like something strange happened to the sun; it increased its luminosity. Uh, the amount of energy that was coming from the sun about uh, uh, 500 million years ago. And one of the interesting things is on Earth, that's when there was this uh, explosion of life. Uh, We call it the Cambrian explosion about 550 million years ago. Uh, And uh, most people said that was because the Earth was warmer. Well, maybe it was warmer because the sun changed its, uh, its way of operating. Uh, That's the kind of thing we're working on right now today, and it's made possible uh, in large part because of the advance of analytical technology. Uh, What what we uh, do today compared to what we could do 50 years ago with these samples is almost night and day. It's it's really amazing. It's like the discovery of water in the uh, ash, the orange ash that I sampled. Um, That was done uh, first in 2008. Uh, we never, we thought up until that time that the moon was bone dry, that there was no water. We knew there were other volatiles, but no water. Well, now we know there's water inside the moon, and and that in turn starts to open up your thinking about what about the ice that we think we've discovered at the poles of the moon? Is that old water that was that came out as volcanic eruptions? Uh, or is it new water that's been formed by some other process? So we're we we uh, we're having a lot of exciting times in the <laughs> lunar science community right now.
0: And that, uh, that brings up a good point, is is even after your mission, you've still stayed very connected to studying the moon and, and trying to uncover its secrets. Can you tell me a little bit about that, your continued involvement with, with uh, science on the moon?
1: Well, I've tried, uh, since I left the United States Senate, I've tried to get back in the game, so to speak. <laughs> And uh, and I I give a, a paper, two or three a year, at various science conferences. I'm, I try to publish uh, also. Uh, just recently, in uh, two years ago, my colleagues and I published a paper called Revisiting uh, Taurus Littrow, the Apollo 17 landing site. And uh, we didn't get all the way through that revisit, but that's still in work. There are other papers now that they're drafting and, and trying. But and the main thing I try to do, is synthesize everything that other people have done uh, and, uh, and that is a very exciting thing to do. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm also involved in one of the uh, sample uh, analysis teams that's going to look at these samples that have never been opened uh, that NASA has recently decided they would open uh, core tube from our, <laughs> our station three, Apollo 17 station three uh, on the, O oh, that large avalanche that I mentioned. Uh, that uh, I'm working with the University of New Mexico uh, scientist Chip, uh, Chip Schur, uh, who will uh, be the lead of our team. Uh, it'll be a multidisciplinary uh, investigation of these unopened samples. So that's an exciting thing to do as well.
0: It's uh, it's it's quite amazing about how many you know we all these samples we collected from Apollo that we still continue to investigate and find out new things along the way. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it a little bit because of technology or, or why do you think we are continuing to learn more? Well,
1: it's, it's several things. Mm. It's, uh, technology certainly is, is giving us new tools, but people have learned a lot. They're thinking differently. They, they uh, come up with new ideas and, and the like. Uh, I think it's a combination of that, it's, and it's been an extremely active community for 50 years. And, uh, and I <clears throat> there's no in- indication that it's not gonna be active uh, for another 50 years at least. Uh, again, it's, uh, people have said that the samples are the gift that keeps on giving, and there's no question uh, that that's the case.
0: Now, you were there when President Trump signed uh, Space Policy Directive One. Can you tell me about that experience?
1: Well, it was great to see the uh, President take personal responsibility for getting us back into deep space. Uh, The vice president certainly has uh, played a a tremendous role in that effort. The reactivation of the uh, National Space Council is uh, very important. They also now have a user advisory group on which I serve, uh, as well as a number of other people from around the country. Uh, And uh, so it's a very active policy time right now. The big question is can NASA reorganize itself so it can actually carry out that, uh, that directive? And we don't know the answer to that yet. NASA is not the NASA of, of Apollo. It's older. It's more bureaucratic. Uh, and, uh, and it has its own heritage that uh, it has to either, uh, they, well, let's say it has to deal with. Uh, and so we're, we're still waiting to see whether now uh, NASA can, uh, can implement a very aggressive program. was recently uh, put forward by the Vice President on behalf of the President that we get uh, boots on the moon again Uh, by 2024 and that's extremely important we do that as I indicated earlier we're in another Cold War that I think the administration does recognize that and it's important that we uh, be uh, not only a competitor in that effort, but also that we uh, succeed and are successful in that effort.
0: Mm-hmm. And it is a bold claim, boots on the moon by, by 2024. Part of that plan is uh, to move forward to a sustainable presence. Uh, right now, I think the, the the goal is 2028 to have a sustainable presence on the moon. Can you tell me about what a sustainable presence on the moon would mean from a geological perspective? What are the benefits of doing that?
1: Well, if you establish yourself in a sustained uh, base or settlement, I like to think of a settlement, uh, not only to harvest the energy resources of the Moon, the helium-3, but to, uh, as byproducts, have the resources necessary to go on to Mars, then uh, geologically you're going to learn about another planet eventually, namely Mars. But also it provides a base of operations for the exploration of the moon. You don't have to always launch from Earth to explore a new part uh, of the moon. You can launch from that base to go to anywhere on the moon, really, uh, and uh, conduct those geological uh, studies. The main thing that uh, we're, that studying the moon gives us about the earth, we all, one of the things we already have, and that is we know now that the early history of the earth was extremely violent. There were major huge impacts happening not only on the moon, but on the earth. And and at the same time though, uh, life was getting a start. Uh, The complex molecules were getting organized and ultimately became replicating molecules that led us to life. And and, uh, the more we can understand the moon in that period of time, the better we're going to understand the origins of
0: life here on earth. Well, looking forward to going back uh, to the moon, or sorry, forward to the moon, what are some of the more interesting places? Do you have some, uh, some, some locations in mind of what would be probably more interesting to explore or to, like you said, settle?
1: Well, the largest basin on the Moon, the largest impact-produced basin on the Moon is almost certainly about 3,200 kilometers in diameter. It's called the Procolarum Basin. That's continental in scale here on Earth. That would cover the entire United States. Uh, the one basin that everybody agrees occurred is twenty five hundred kilometers in in diameter, also continental in scale. Uh, and it may be in these very large basins we have the origin of the continents. we We don't know that yet, but uh, that's that's a possibility uh, that uh, a variety of things happened in order to seed the continents after these large basins formed. Uh, the uh, uh, main uh, uh, issue I think though is is to start to sample the materials of these basins and the one large basin that I mentioned 3,200 kilometers in diameter procalarum is so old that it's going to be very difficult to know that that's what you're sampling. In fact, I think we've already gotten samples from procalarum but that's a different story. That the geologic context of procalarum is going to be very difficult. Whereas South Pole aiken the other basin, 2,500 kilometers in diameter, is still well-defined. And if we do our planning right, I think we can not only learn about the materials produced by such large impacts, but we may be actually be able to get samples of the lunar mantle from the center of that crater. The, that crater floor is 12 kilometers below the mean lunar radius, so it's, it's a very deep basin as well as a very uh, large basin. And, and that uh, probably right now is the site, uh, South Pole Lake, is where I and most other people, I think, would like to go. And that's where the Chinese have landed, by the way. They're not, uh, not uh, very far behind us in that respect.
0: It's an interesting place, for sure. Um, so, so a sustainable presence, can you tell me about what that opens up to the scientific community? I think you've already mentioned sample returns, more sample returns, possibly better technology. What does this open up?
1: Well, having a base on the moon uh, again gives you uh, access to the entire moon uh, scientifically, it also though allows you to to look at things in situ that is in place the one for example, we cannot produce a simulate of lunar soil here on earth that is a true simulant. we can produce certain aspects of it and learn from those aspects, but you cannot produce a true simulate because those the lunar soils are forming in a vacuum that is as hard as deep space vacuum, Uh, 10 to the minus 12 torr if you're into the the uh, nomenclature of vacuums. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is really uh, uh, impossible not to uh, be able to understand the processes that are operating in the lunar environment without being there and actually working in situ, in place with those materials so that that's uh, that's probably one of the major things and and also we're just now starting to understand how the history of the sun can be deciphered uh, from the lunar soils and uh... that that's going to be difficult but i think we're now finally we've talked about it for well over fifty years that the moon is recording the history of the sun uh... and now though we're finally with the data we have with the analytical techniques that we have Uh, beginning to understand what we ought to be looking for, but getting more uh, pages out of that history book uh, from different parts of the Moon is going to be extremely important if we really want to understand the long-term history of the Sun.
0: Now aside from the physical science, the geological science of a sustainable presence on the Moon, what else is important for establishing that presence?
1: I think the main thing that's important is for it to have an economic reason to exist, and that's where this Uh, helium-3 fusion power comes in. Uh, If indeed helium-3 fusion can be uh, developed here on earth as a a commercially viable source of electrical power, then a a settlement on the moon has an economic uh, reason to exist. And I feel actually confident that that's going to happen someday. Uh, But still, that needs to be established and needs to be explored. And people are now uh, looking at that very, very seriously. The technology is advancing to, uh, uh, that is related to helium-3 fusion. Uh, That's a very important thing, because I don't think you'll you'll do much with it until you know for sure that there's a commercially viable fusion reactor. Helium-3 is very rare here on Earth. It's only produced by the decay of tritium uh that uh, and that is uh, uh a tritium that's used in nuclear weapons uh it has a half life of 13 years approximately and so every 13 years or so you have to clean up these uh, weapons and the, and that's the source of helium 3 helium 3 is also very important in use in neutron detectors the homeland security department uses it and, and in fact is has tied up most of the supply in order to ha- be able to have detectors at our borders that can uh, uh, look for uh, nuclear materials, uh, uh, clandestine nuclear materials coming into the country. Uh, So uh, there are a lot of challenges in developing helium-3 fusion, but I think those can all be met uh, in the long term, and uh, that will probably be the sustaining economic reason to have a settlement and maybe ultimately an independent settlement. uh, Jefferson uh, always used to say a little revolution is important every once in a while. And uh, taxation uh, of a lunar settlement without representation uh, might just trigger that small revolution. And we would have a a little settlement, uh, another birth of freedom, if you will, on the moon.
0: (laughs) Now, um, you've you've been a NASA astronaut. You've been close to the scientific community, especially studying the moon uh, for years now. Can you tell me about, from your perspective, the benefits of human space exploration? Why is it important?
1: It's important uh, geopolitically for the United States to be very active in deep space. It's important uh, from a humanistic point of view to continue to challenge, uh, for the human species to continue challenge itself against uh, the frontiers as it always has. Uh, I think it's in our DNA to move into uh, new areas, uh, find new resources, new ways of sustaining our uh, civilization. Uh, those are probably the two most important things. One, geopolitical and two, uh, the uh, uh, continuation of the exercise of the human spirit against new frontiers.
0: Now, I wanted to end on a little bit more of a fun note. (coughs) Do you have any tips and tricks as a lunar explorer yourself for the future lunar astronauts?
1: Well, the main thing that you need to uh, uh, realize is working in one-sixth gravity is a lot of fun. (laughs) It, uh, I only weighed one sixth of my total weight, uh, including the spacesuit and the backpack and everything. I weighed 62 pounds. And so uh, the suit is encumbering. We need much better suits, and I hope that NASA begins to invest in those suits uh, very vigorously. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the A7LB that we had for Apollo 17 worked extremely well. And remember that in one sixth gravity, the whole surface is like a giant trampoline. Uh, It's like walking on such a trampoline.
0: Dr. Schmidt, I very much appreciate your time today. It was an honor to talk with you. Thank you very much.
1: It's my pleasure, thank you.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really good conversation we had with Dr. Harrison Schmidt about all things Apollo 17, science on the moon, and what we have to look forward to. Really enjoyed having him here in our studio. If you're excited about the 50th anniversary of the Apollo program, we have a great website where you can check out all of our materials, nasa.gov Apollo 50th. We have a dedicated series of Apollo 50th anniversary episodes on our Houston. We have a podcast page. Just navigate to there to see all of our collection of episodes. We have many other podcasts at NASA as well, so just go to nasa.gov slash podcast to check them all out. If you'd like to talk to us, we are on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on April 15th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Norm Moran, Pat Ryan, Belinda Polito, and Stephanie Castillo. Thanks to Dr. Harrison Schmidt for taking the time out of his busy schedule to speak with us.